Really glad you're here. Today's week, um, excuse me, today is the fifth of a, of a series of timeouts that we've been doing in our study through James. We started in January in a series called Shoe Leather Theology. And uh, we came to, when we come to certain topics within our series, we take an extra week and talk about that topic. This is the fifth of those we're calling timeouts. And we're going to be looking at Paul's perspective or instruction or um, gui guidelines um, on the coming of the Lord because last week we looked at what James said about it, that we should be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so this week uh, we're going to take time to see what Paul also said about the coming of the Lord, Christ's return. Now, I'm going to show you kind of where we're headed today. So here's our main take-home truth. I'm going to give it to you up front, so I want you to watch how it unfolds in this text today, okay? But here's where, really where we're headed. Could you read this out loud with me together? Ready? The certainty of the Lord's return comes alongside God's people and enables them to grieve with hope for those asleep and live with purpose as those awake. You'll see this kind of several times throughout this morning. I think by the time you leave, you'll know, okay, so that's what we're after. It is. Now, notice something I did here. We're focused on the Lord's return. We're not going to focus this morning on, on, on a lot of other things about it. And there are a number of things that kind of accompany and uh, come alongside the Lord's return. The timing of, of the millennium, the nature of it, the nature of the tribulation. You can have a number of things here that are all under the umbrella of eschatology. Say that word with me. Eschatology. There's a number of things under that umbrella we could talk about and even disagree on. All right? We're going to focus instead on, on the one thing that we are certain about for sure and that we all agree on, and that's this, that Jesus is returning. He is coming. In fact, this fact has been misapplied and, and uh, used to do some really stupid things. For instance, a guy wrote a book in 1988, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That's just not a good idea. Somewhere there weren't people around him helping him in, in writing, you know, like 88 passed and 88 reasons weren't, they just didn't, bad idea for a book, you know. Trying to time the rapture, that's just not something that Paul gets into. Or James doesn't discuss those peripheral matters about the coming. As you know, in 2011, Harold Camping was sure it was going to be May 21st. Remember these signs around the different areas and the, the way it hit the media? The return of Christ on May 21st. It didn't happen. See, sometimes people get off on, on things about the return of Christ, what I would say maybe open-handed issues. These issues here obviously are, are just ridiculously way off base. And they, they miss the real close-fisted element within eschatology, that Jesus is coming. On that, we must agree. There may be some things around that that we can disagree on and still remain friends. And I think it's unfortunate when people get off the main thing and onto the lesser things. I just saw this week, in fact, that someone's now predicting a new date for the Lord's return. Did you know that? Have you heard this? August 2nd, 2027. I don't know where this comes from. I'm not sure... Uh, who, I just happened to say, oh, wow, we've got another predictor. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, I, I'm not worried about dates and seasons and times. I think what Jesus said to the disciples was very wise. It is not for you to know the timing. It's for you to be witnesses. Could somebody on that say amen? Amen. amen. Now, I want to take a minute also and help you understand some things about this idea of the Lord's return and eschatology and kind of how we're approaching today. Lay some more groundwork for this. We're going to focus on the fact of and the certainty of the Lord's return. On that, Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical Christianity agrees. Are you with me? That Jesus is returning. Christ is coming. Now, around that, like I said... The timing of, of when he raptures his church, 
how much of the tribulation, if any, his church may experience. What is the millennium, the nature of it? When does it begin and start? And those are things that the Bible talks about, but it may not, in some sense, give definitive, concrete information because there's various opinions on them, okay? There's just various views about eschatology, but there, there aren't various views about is Christ coming? There's one. Guess what it is? He is coming. So to just kind of help prove this point to me and to you and to our staff, and I want to do something a little odd this morning. In regards to the larger picture of eschatology, I want you to ask yourself, do I know where I land on this? I want you to see just how different people are in their views on this and can still get along in the same church can still work together. I want to show you the four main views of eschatology. And I just want to see, don't answer out loud, I want you to take the feedback card, every single person here. If you're a guest, you're exempt from this. But if you're not a guest, you're not exempt. If you're a regular attender, or a member, I want you to take the feedback card from the back of the chair in front of you, and I want you to just write down which eschatological view you lean towards, all right? Now, there are some here that say, Todd, I know where I stand today. I mean, you'll, you'll nail it down. That's good. That's awesome. By the way, we have leaders in our church among these four major views. I, I don't know that if, I won't tell you which ones yet. They're in alphabetical order, so I'm not going to tell you where I lean or where I stand right now. I want to know if you know kind of where you are without a lot of teaching on them yet. Because we teach pretty clearly on the coming of Christ. We nail that one, Amen. Is there some room to have variance in some of these different views and still love the Lord and get along? Yes. So before I go into maybe what these are, even a hint of them, just take a feedback card. Every regular attendant member, some of you aren't moving, like you need, you need to fill this out, okay? This is an impromptu survey. If you don't know, put a question mark. That, that would be an answer. Say, I don't know where I lean. My point is not make you feel bad. My point is to show you, you know what? There are good people who love Jesus, who have different views. Every one of these views, though, holds this truth. I'm going to say it again. You ready? Jesus is returning. Amen? Outside of that, you're into heresy. But the fact that he's coming might have some different perspectives, and these are the four main ones. Where do you land? Where do you tend to lean? Where do you stand? So take the feedback card, just put your name if you can, and then just kind of write, I think I lean or I know I stand, and pick one of these or put a question mark. Now, while I'm here on the survey, I want to do two other questions. I want you to also tell me with a yes or no if you're in a lighthouse. I do this twice a year. You know, I do impromptu surveys. Just on an average weekend crowd, I like to know how many, what percentage of our people are in a lighthouse. So, that's the word for small groups at our church. So, if you're a guest, again, you're exempt from this. But if you're a regular attender or a member, I want to know kind of where you land on this, if you land anywhere. Second question is, are you in a lighthouse? If so, you can just put yes, or you can put the name of the lighthouse, whatever. Third question, you ready? Do you serve somewhere in our church? On a regular basis. By that I mean at least once a month, you're investing your time and energy serving somewhere. So, three simple questions. My goal is, first of all, to make sure we're still celebrating, growing, and serving and doing, aiming towards that and hitting that target. But also, on this question here with the four different eschatological views, I just want you to see that it's okay to have some disagreement on some of the open-handed aspects of Christ's return. Here's where we can't get loosey-goosey. You ready? We can't say, well, he's probably not coming back. No, Jesus is returning. And it's that we're going to talk about this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. Now, on your survey, hopefully you'll have that completed in a few moments. I just encourage you, you can drop that in any of the boxes in the back. You can drop it off as you leave. There's even a box by the main doors. Just let us know answers to those three questions. It would help us a ton. I would say this to you. I'll probably post 
some real um, basic understandings of these four main eschatological views on my, on my blog this week. So maybe check that out. And uh, if you're not sure what some of them mean, I'll help you out a little bit there and give you just a, a, a nugget or two about what they mean, all right? Let's focus, though, if we can, for a little bit on the return of Christ. The certainty of this, the closed-fisted doctrine that we hold to without budging, that Jesus is coming. Paul addresses this fact in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. Here's what he does. Can I get you to take a 30,000-foot view for a moment? I think in 4, 13 through 18, he addresses the Lord's coming and how it will affect those who have already died. Make a mental note of that. And in 5, 1 through 11, he addresses the coming of the Lord and those who are still living. He calls it the day of the Lord in chapter 5. He calls it the coming of the Lord in chapter 4. But I would remind you that in 2 Thessalonians 2, if we'll just look to your right for a bit, he actually connects all of those together. And of course, that kind of leans into one of those major views. I won't go there today. But there, there, there's, there's reason to believe that these have some connection. They're, they're happening at His coming. There may be a gap between them. There may not be. We'll let those who disagree on those kind of fight it out. But there's a connection here that Paul is making. He's, he's addressing the parousia of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, this day of Christ, this day of the Lord. And how, would it, how, how does that affect those who have already died, and how does it affect those who are living? We're going to see that. Let's read, first of all, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Can we? Let's understand, first of all, things about the coming of Christ and how it affects those who have died. He says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. The word asleep, there is a euphemism for dead. And Paul must be addressing the fact that, that they were uninformed. That maybe they, they were grieving like pagans because they thought they would never see their loved ones who were in Christ spiritually, maybe they thought they would never see them again. There was a sense of sadness, of like of loss beyond the grave even. So he says, no, I want you to be informed about those who have died so that you don't grieve as others who, who have no hope. Now what's the explanatory phrases here beginning in 14? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and, and notice here, make this mark, what Paul is going to explain hinges on the gospel. Amen? That is the gospel, isn't it? The death and resurrection of Christ. So what we know about Christ's return and how it affects those who have previously died, it is tied to the gospel. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So asleep in verse 13, asleep in verse 14, these are those who have died, but this says if they're in Christ, the gospel, Christ's work on their behalf, means that, that God will bring them with him when he comes. So, so here's the, the first thing to understand is that if they were uninformed, that they thinking, well, we'll never see our loved ones again, Paul's saying, no, no, that's misinformation. You will see them again. They're dead physically, but God will bring them with him when he comes. Now watch this. And we declare this to you by a word from the Lord. Now where that word is is a good question. Some have thought it may be referencing 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe it's Acts chapter 1 and the ascension when Jesus actually said, you've seen me go, I will come in like manner. But here's a very authoritative word that the Lord even said that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede or prevent those who have fallen asleep. Again, the idea of being dead. So just because a Thessalonian believer died in that time did not mean that the Thessalonian believers who were alive would never see them again. If they were both believers, Paul here is assuring them those who are alive will not prevent those who have died from reuniting one day because God will bring the dead ones with him. Let's keep reading. Here's more about this coming of the Lord. 
the time when God's going to bring those dead saints with him, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's going to be a a climactic event here. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now notice something here. Listen very carefully. Because if you remember previous verses, it says that God's going to bring them with him, right? Here he says the dead in Christ will rise. So what's happening? Theologically, those who have died are in what we call an intermediate state right now. I don't believe personally they have a body there currently. I believe it's their soul and spirit. It is fully alive. They're fully in God's presence. They're fully aware. But they're without a glorified body with which they can one day enter the consummated kingdom. When Christ comes, their body on this earth, regardless of whether it's cremated or buried or blown up at sea or destroyed in a war or under a fallen building, those things aren't a problem for God. He made you out of dust. He can make you again out of the same thing, all right? So wherever your body is will be resurrected. You in the intermediate state of the soul and spirit of the dead person, they will connect. And at that moment in the air, I believe, God gives a glorified body to those who have died. At the same time, it says, those who are alive, verse 17, we who are left will be caught up together with them. Them, speaking of the dead in Christ. See the word together in verse 17? What Paul here is painting a picture of is a reunion that will help correct the misinformation. The information that they had that was wrong was this. If they're dead, we'll never see them. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't be uninformed. Their bodies will rise. God will bring them with him. You'll be caught up or raptured to meet them in the air. There's going to be this great reunion. I mean, someone here should sing a southern gospel song. Are you with me? I mean, it just, it just feels like somebody's going to have a banjo and a reunion and some fried chicken, right? But Paul here is teaching that there is a great reunion coming when those who have died will be raised by Christ. And because of what Jesus did for us, God will bring them with him. They'll meet. You'll be raptured, snatched. At this climactic event with an archangel's voice, a sound of a trumpet, the command of of God, man, that will be a day, won't it? That's going to happen. Now, is there a lot about this event that people disagree on? There is. Some see this as a secret rapture. I don't personally, but is there some indication that maybe the church is taken away and, and then the other folks left here for a while? Possibly. Um, there's just a number of ramifications here. My point is not to get into that except to say this. This passage teaches the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the dead saved, the glorification of their bodies, and the reunion of all together with the Lord. And I really, whether you are pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, we are all pro coming. Hallelujah, church. That's where we are. It says, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, now watch this next word, two letters. And so, we, who is the we referring to? The we is referring to those who are dead and those who are alive with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Now, let me just be a, me a pastor for a moment. I look at people who've lost people in death over the last year or two. Your dad and your son. Katie, your father just this week. The Hensels. And I'm missing some I know. Forgive me. I'm not trying to leave my out. I'm just... I want to say to you with great pastoral compassion and yet theological confidence. They were a believer. You'll see them and be with them again. I don't think that lessens the pain of this time without them, perhaps. Some of you are in waters I've never walked. I'm speaking here 
without knowing the full extent of your experience. I don't know if that lessens the pain, but I will tell you this. God's word gives us the authority that this is not the end. Amen, church? Some of you have had children die. You've, had, you've lost babies in miscarriages and situations that... I'm just, I want to bring some hope to you today so that you don't grieve as pagans. That's what the point of this whole paragraph is, isn't it? I don't want you grieving like those who have no hope. Here's the fact of Christ coming. And so he says in verse 18, knowing that Jesus and what he's done for us enables now the resurrection of the saved dead the gathering of the saved alive with the Lord in the air when he comes, he says in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. The word encourage there is a combination of two Greek words, to call and come alongside of. It's the same word used when Jesus said, I will send another comforter. It's the same word used of the Holy Spirit. He's to come alongside of us and comfort us. Paul said here, these words are come-alongside words. You know that? They're designed to comfort us. They're designed to give us hope and encouragement. Now, in teaching through these verses, I think basically what I've done is given you, I've shown you eight traits of the Lord's return as it affects those who have died. So let me just show you those real quickly. Some of you love to take notes. You think in terms of lists and bullets, and I'm good with that. Here they are just kind of sequentially listed for you. The eight things that, that Paul says about the Lord's return as it affects those who are already dead. It is comforting, unifying, it is certain, it's personal and bodily, it's visible and audible, it's rapturing, it's inaugural, and it's encouraging. When I say inaugural, it begins that time when we live with the Lord forever. Okay? It's rapturing in that the church is caught up. And we're meeting the Lord and those who have died in the air. It's certain because it comes right from a word from God. It's personal, bodily, it's visible, it's audible. How all those work is this Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 where, where John says, I heard a voice like a trumpet. Is this Revelation 6 where uh, it's described as a very cataclysmic climatic event? Is this Revelation 10? It's the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet. I don't know. How's that for an answer, okay? I just know that, that our home going is tied to the coming of the Lord. And that reunion is going to be grand one day. So here's eight traits about the coming of the Lord, eight characteristics, eight markers, if you would, and how it affects those who have died. Here's how I'd summarize this, okay? I'd say that, that Paul's teaching in regards to Christ's coming and how it affects those who have died is come alongside comfort. In fact, this is what I call funeral home theology. This is the kind of scripture, this is the, the truth that every single person in a funeral home who's visiting with friends and family, who's going to a service later, who's at a graveside, this is the kind of theology they've got to put their feet on. I don't know if it always feels great. I'm not sure how these words always land in their ears. But this is the theology that we cling to and hold fast to while we wait for the coming of our Lord, all right? What does he say next about his coming and those who are still alive? Let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 5. I'll explain this a little bit. We'll look at some traits of this, and then I'll take a question or two, hopefully, all right? Here's what he says in chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, and by the way, the word times there is the word from which we get chronos or chronology. He there is probably meaning the sequence of the timing. And the word seasons is more of the idea of a, of a moment in time, like a certain period of time, not necessarily the chronological nature of it, but just the moment of it. You've used these words before, like if I were to say, Ben, what time is it? He would know I would looking for a chronological number. 
But if I said to my wife, is it time for dinner? She might not be thinking a number. She's thinking about a time of the day like this is the moment we eat. Does that make sense? It's kind of how the words are used here. And Paul's saying about those two things, and catch this, catch this. This is so convicting. Watch this. About the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. But yet, what are all the books about in the bookstore? They're about times and seasons, aren't they? It's like people have missed this verse. This is crazy. Paul says, you, ha- you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, he uses some different language here, mainly the day of the Lord, the idea of a thief in the night. Um, and he's saying that those who are believers about these issues, they don't need to have anything written to them. Here's why I think that is. I think he's saying here that this is an aspect of the Lord's parousia, the Lord's appearing, the Lord's coming, that they will be rescued from. Like, don't worry. You're not going to be under the wrath of the day of the Lord. And that's why he says in the next couple of verses more about this day and how it concerns those who are unbelievers. Look what he says. Hear the warning in these verses. These are folks who are still alive, don't get me wrong, but they're actually alive and they're not believers. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon, what's the next word? Them. What's Paul been using in prior to this? He's been using the word we, hasn't he? So he's here talking about now a people who aren't believing, who aren't aware that Christ has made everything, done everything necessary to assure those living and dead that will be reunited. He's saying, no, they're putting all their stock in this current life, and then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So there is an aspect, now watch this, there's, there's an aspect to his coming that is comforting, there's an aspect to his coming that is judgmental. And I believe his coming for those who are believers is comforting and his coming for those who are unbelievers is, is uh, inevitable, un, uh, it's unpredictable, it's a sudden, it's in judgment. Paul told Timothy in one of his epistles that when the Lord, the righteous judge, comes. And so two things are happening based on what I see here at the coming of Christ. There's a comfort to believers, there's a reuniting with those who have died, and then there is a judgment on those who aren't believers. Now, again, is there a gap between these two things? Some say there is, some say there's not. My point today is not to debate that or argue that or win you to one of those sides. My point is to show you that if you're not a believer, the Bible teaches that there is a day coming when sudden destruction will occur and you will not escape. Verse 4, however, says to those who are believers, do you see the word but there? But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so, so let us not sleep as others do. Now, 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 pause there and watch this. I know you can't see this in the English language, but that word sleep in chapter 5, verse 6 is not the same word as 4.13 when it says those who are sleeping. One refers to an act of, of rest. The chapter 4 sleep is an act of rest. The chapter 5 sleep is moral indifference. It's like you just don't care. It's like you're awake, but you're, you're just completely... Uh, indifferent to what's happening around you. You don't even, you know, you don't care. Now, I know you can't see that in this translation, but what Paul here, he's not, he's not saying these folks who suddenly have destruction come upon them, folks who are living like there's really no tomorrow, so to speak. He's not saying they're sleeping as if they're dying. He's saying they're living their life as if th- there's nothing to really worry about in regards to their eternal destiny. They had this moral indifference He says, we should not live that way. We should keep awake and be sober. The words there mean to be controlled, alert, diligent. Notice what he does here. He kind of contrasts being awake and being sober. That's how God's people are with those who sleep or they're morally indifferent in their activities at night. You know, he uses the idea of the daytime for those who are Christians, those who are believers. 
He says those who sleep, those who act morally indifferent, those who don't care, they sleep at night. They get drunk. They're drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be, again, here's the word sober, used twice. And why can we be sober, controlled, alert? Why can we live this way? Here's this next modifying phrase. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Here's this famous trio. Do you see it? Faith, hope, and love. We've put this on. And so because God has actually adorned us this way and we're wearing this actively, we're not living as pagans. So watch this, church. Listen. We don't grieve as pagans when people die, and we don't live like pagans when we're living. In other words, we, there's a stark difference that the coming of the Lord makes in our life concerning those who have died and concerning those of us who are still alive. There should be a difference in us. We don't grieve the same. We don't live the same. Why? Because of the coming of the Lord. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Man, mark that phrase, underline it, put it in red, blue, green, highlight it, yellow. God has not destined you for wrath. And here, now, let me just be very transparent with you on this point. Whether or not you think the time of wrath to come in the tribulation is seven years or whether you think it's a small amount of time or currently ongoing, Let's just be clear on one thing. God's people are not destined for the wrath of the Lamb mentioned in Revelation chapter 6. Amen? So I really don't, I mean, we can have fun talking about it, but my goal is not to debate you about that issue. My goal is to rejoice with you that for those in Christ, when this judgment day comes, when the day of Christ, the day of the Lord when the, la the wrath of the Lamb is revealed from heaven to culminate the judgment of God upon this earth, if you're in Christ, you will not experience it. Now, on the heels of that, I need to say this to you. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, maybe you're a skeptic or a seeker and you're not against God, you just have never really given it much thought perhaps. Or maybe you are against God. Maybe you're angry at Him and bitter for things that have happened in your life. Can, I just want to encourage you. The Bible here tells us that a day is coming for those who don't believe that includes sudden destruction, unavoidable, inevitable judgment, and wrath. And that if you're not in Christ, you will have to suffer under it. What I'm thankful for is that Jesus Christ suffered all of God's wrath for me. Do you see why believing in Christ matters now? On the cross, Jesus took all of the wrath for God, uh, all of God's wrath for God's people. And if you don't believe in Christ, then you'll have to suffer that wrath yourself. There is no scenario in which God does not judge sin. The question is, will you trust that Christ's work paid for it or will you pay for your own sin infinitely in hell and suffer the wrath of God against it? I would plead with you, trust in Christ today. Believe that Jesus died and rose again, mentioned in chapter 4. In fact, Paul does that here. He says, God's not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation, watch this, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right now where you're seating, just, just say, God, through your son Jesus, save me from your wrath. I believe you died on the cross. You were, you were raised and God save me so that when you come, I'll meet you in the air and not be under sudden, unavoidable, inevitable judgment. Just call out to God to save you. And God in his graciousness, God in all of his mercy, will do exactly that. He will save you from your sins and you will not be under his wrath, but you will obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. He did that and he will do that. Verse 10 says, so that, watch this, the phrase. Look how this sums up now 
chapter 4 and 5. He died for us, speaking of Christ, so that whether we are awake, circle that word, draw a line to the margin of your Bible and put the word living. I think that word awake there refers to the ones he's talking about in chapter 5 who are saved. Whether we are awake or asleep, circle that word, put out beside it dead. That refers to chapter 4, verses 11, uh, excuse me, 13 to 18. So in this one single verse, verse 10, Paul kind of recaptures uh, his, his uh, writing to both groups. Whether we are awake or asleep, whether you are living or dead, guess what? We will live with him. Isn't that fantastic? Delightful, isn't it? That God's aim, God's goal, God's will and plan is that whether you are dead in Christ, physically, so to speak, or whether you are living in Christ, when he comes, we will all live with him. But this is only possible through Jesus Christ. He then says in verse 11 something very similar to what he said in verse 18 of chapter 4. He says, therefore, encourage. In other words, come alongside each other and build one another up just as you are doing. The word build there is the word from we get our word house. It means to construct, to motivate, to kind of strengthen. So guess what? If I were to try to provide some mental furniture for you to sit on in regards to this passage, I would say one of the words is the word encourage in verse 18 of 4 and in 11 of 5, in which he said, what I've said about the coming of the Lord to those who are dead should encourage you. And what I've said about the coming of the Lord to those who are alive should encourage you. In other words, the teaching on the coming of the Lord should be an encouragement, whether you're thinking about someone who has died or whether you're thinking about you who are still living. It should come alongside of you and encourage you, build you up. Here's seven things about the coming of the Lord for those who are still alive. I'll just list them on the board here behind me. You can kind of jot these down as well. It's dual, which means there seem to be various, I think, two aspects to it. Again, how it all plays out, the timing of it, the nature of that. We can debate that at a symposium if we'd like. We can talk about that at a round table. But there is some dual aspects to his coming. It's sudden, inevitable, it's motivating, it's rescuing, it's inaugural. Again, what does it inaugurate? It inaugurates eternity, and it's encouraging. The key piece of information here, I think, is the word encouraging. All right? So, so whether you're thinking of someone who's already died or you're thinking of those who around you who are still living, maybe even yourself, the truth about Christ's coming, that it's certain... And not only the eight things about those who are dead, but the seven about those who are alive. Man, it should, those should all encourage us, come alongside of us, first of all, to comfort us. And in this case, it's come alongside motivation. All right? Motivation to what? It's motivation to live soberly, controlled, in an awake kind of fashion. I think a good understanding of this word sober is when Paul said this in Ephesians. Listen very carefully. He says that we should redeem the time. We should make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Paul would lean upon those Ephesian believers and say this. Whatever you're doing, make every minute count. Buy back every opportunity. Why? Because we're in days that are evil I think inherent in that is the fact that Christ is coming. He could, be, he could come at any moment. So, so don't waste your life and don't waste your time. Here's what's really cool about this passage. Watch this. And after this, I'll take a question or two. Paul does not say in this passage, and I'm going to kind of dig a little bit here, so uh, work with me here. He doesn't say, we're not like those of the night. We're like those in the day. Let's be sober and let's all be missionaries or pastors or preachers. He doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't give a single occupation here, does he? He just implies and says that whatever you're doing, do it with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation and do it in a way that's sober, controlled. So if you're working at PetSmart 
if you're an engineer at John Deere, I mean, if you're at Prudential, if you're a realtor, if you're a baker, if you do landscaping, if you're a school teacher, if you are a pastor, if you're a businessman, if you're a construction worker, a contractor, if you're an accountant, I've missed some I know, but I'm just saying everything, what could someone do in our church, right? Hey, whatever you're doing, redeem every opportunity, whether you're a housewife, a, a mom, a, a father, whatever your occupation, I don't know that God is so concerned about that as is the manner in which you go about it. And he wants you to do what you're doing, understanding the coming of Christ is just around the corner. And there are people, they're going to be totally caught off guard, surprised. It's inevitable. He is coming. You're not caught off guard. You're protected. You're rescued from the wrath to come, right? Your safety and security is in Him. But there are people, they're, they're not. So let us live redeeming every moment. Let us be motivated by the coming of Christ to live in a controlled, alert fashion. This is Paul on the coming of the Lord. Without regard to a lot of the peripheral or, or, or secondary loose-handed issues, this is Paul on the one thing for sure about this that we hold tightly. Jesus is returning. Amen? And he will bring with him those who have died. You will see them again. And if you're still living, that fact should cause us to be motivated to live a controlled, alert, redemptive type of life. Before I close, let's see if there's any questions you have about this text, this passage. We have two questions. I'll take the first one, which, by the way, this came in this week. So I put it in early. I had a little time to think about this, which was good for me. Not so much on the spot. But someone asked me earlier, how does this passage help us think rightly about death? Because really, the, the, the first paragraph is about being correctly informed about those who have died, right? And so he talks about the coming of Christ. And the specific question from the person was, what about laws about death with dignity and the different initiatives in the various states about dying well and dying rightly and do we own that right and is it okay? And so I thought about what this passage says about death. Let me, let me say this to you, this very carefully. There's an implication here that death is a natural occurrence that is owned by God. Now this most recent session of our own legislature here in Iowa, there was a bill put forward to... Um, enact some things called about the death with dignity. I'm not a real fan of that phrase uh, because I think behind it is what they're really saying is this. They want uh, death by ownership. I think they want to usurp the right to decide the day of their death. And they're phrasing it with things like death with dignity and so they bring this to the table and, and this is a very emotional issue. It's very personal to people. My sense is that it's really trying to own and control what, what is actually God's. So I, I would say that this passage shows us that death is a part, watch this, of the process of life. Do you know that? And that kind of sounds kind of funny. But death is a part of the process of life should we experience it before the Lord returns. And I think we live in a culture of death in many ways, from euthanasia, assisted suicide, abortion, and often it's cloaked in different language, like a woman's right. Um, we shouldn't have to suffer this way for months, someone who's in their dying stages. But you know that James taught us this, that sometimes some of the best things we learn are in our moments of suffering. Did you know that? Now, I realize this is very personal, very intense, very emotional, but I would just challenge us all to think biblically about death the Bible teaches that, that death is really the day of our death. I think the Old Testament says is in the hands of our God. He numbers our days. It's not wrong to bring um, someone comfort, obviously. 
It's not wrong to try to help them in their pain. But I, I would just be leery of situations where we're trying to control it and hasten it. You know, death, uh, the Bible sees death in some ways as, as a curse. It is a doorway to our next life as believers, but death's called the enemy. And God has encouraged us through Scripture to choose life. And so I just want to encourage you, in this passage... Death is a natural occurrence. It's not something that we usurp the right to then begin to manufacture or make or prod. And how all that plays out in the end is, is, can be um, touch and go. I would just encourage you and remind you, we don't, I don't think it's biblical to control the day of our death. I think that's in the hands of God, and we must then do what we can around that to be biblical and still helpful and right. I think that's one thing this passage about death is that it's a natural occurrence. It's part of God's plan should he not return so he controls it. Good question. I put more on this on my blog, by the way, just this morning. Three or four helpful articles that I think help us think about this issue correctly, biblically, rightly. I'd encourage you to go by there, toddstyles.net. And you can read some of that and maybe even formulate some other opinions and insights about this issue of death in light of the Lord's coming, all right? Second question, if the dead are in heaven, how will they rise first? Will they be sent back to earth? So the dead are in heaven in their intermediate state, their soul and spirit. The dead bodies are on the earth, or you may say in the earth. They will reunite. So I don't know that they, they don't come back to the earth and then go back to the air. It's like a reuniting of their body and their soul and spirit in the air. I believe at the same time that the alive people are caught up in the air together. Does that make sense? So I wouldn't think, I, I don't know if I'd say the dead are in heaven. Well, they are in heaven, but their bodies aren't yet. Their bodies are here, and they'll be resurrected. That's why the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. That means there's going to be a meeting in the air of their soul and spirit, and then their body. And they'll move then from an intermediate state to what we call a glorified state. And that's what's required to live in a consummated kingdom. Now, some of this sounds probably something like Lord of the Rings-ish to y'all. You know, you're like, man. <coughs> Trust the Bible. Believe the Lord. Um, so it's a good question. But I, I, would, I, I would never say the dead aren't in heaven. I wouldn't say that. They are in heaven, but their bodies aren't yet. Now, as one, uh, I'd like to be transparent here, obviously. I don't know that I would say this at a funeral. Did you know that? I don't know that you teach every single aspect of theology at a funeral. So you've heard things like this. Well, they're better off now. They're not crippled anymore. They're not, you know, they're running the streets of gold. The truth is, in the intermediate state, they're probably not. They're better, yes, but they're not running yet. Does that make sense? They're a spirit and soul. They're fully alive in the presence of the Lord fully enjoying heaven, but when their body is resurrected and then they're given a glorified body, then comes the running the streets of gold, you know, the half marathons, the full marathons, and never feeling a bit of cardio issue. Man, won't that be great, right? That's a little bit of a joke there, folks. Relax, okay? So, the dead are in heaven, but their bodies aren't yet. When Christ returns, their bodies raised, meets their soul and spirit of the Lord in the air, we'll be meeting them together, and then eternity begins. Good question. So, what do we do with all this? I, I think we do what Paul said we do with it. We take it and we encourage each other. We come alongside each other. That's what the word encourage means, remember? Just take the word for what it says. We come along someone and when they are grieving and dealing with, a, with someone who's already died, we use the coming of Christ to encourage them. When we're still living, we do the same thing. We come alongside them and we say, hey, we encourage them. Don't give up. Stay alert. As I was thinking through these verses, this take-home truth about the certainty of the Lord's return, how it comes alongside of us to grieve with hope for those who are asleep, to live with purpose of those awake, thinking about all this stuff here. For some reason, my mind just went back to my days of growing up in my home church. 
with my parents. And man, I, I thought I told you this week, I said, I'm so thankful for God's sovereignty in putting me in our home and in that church. I, I didn't decide to live there. I didn't decide to be born in that family. And all that's out of my hands, all right? But, but God just put me in a church and a home where, to be frank with you, I, I, it wasn't until the last couple of weeks that I realized we talked a lot about the Lord's return. I didn't realize it until this week. I was like, man, we talked a lot about the second coming of Christ. In fact, get this. For about 15 years, we sang in our church a song every week that was the same song. Now, they sang it more than 15 years. But I was there, I think, from like fourth or fifth grade up through into my theological training. And so however long that was, we, we sang this one song. It was called Behold He Comes. And you wouldn't know it probably, and I'm not even going to try to. It's a simple course, but it's built on four-part harmony, and it's designed to kind of crescendo at the end and make a big statement. And we literally sang it every single week before the offering. That's 52 a year times at least 15. So when I start breaking out in song on that, you know, behold, he comes. I, I know the words, the punctuation. The, I know that song backwards and forwards. Like, man, I know that song, right? And so I got the hymn book out this week, and I, and I started looking through there. Um, songs that as a kid I sang. And it's amazing how thankful I became in just realizing that there was some real solid truth just kind of laid in my life year after year about the coming of Christ. Flipping through that hymn book, probably my favorite one was uh, the one that talked about just not giving up because the day when we'll see Christ is coming it will be worth it all. Maybe you know that. I don't know if you do or not. You're probably over 40. You might. My kids wouldn't know it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrow will erase. Now watch this. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 4 through 5, 13 through 5.11. What do you say we run bravely, encouragingly, till we see Christ? Amen.